them here. I was hoping you guys had the answers for how to have boundaries. So. I guess we, we all in the boat together. I'm looking at Monica. I'm looking at Bridget. Looking at Look at me. What's the secret? <laughs> you know I don't have any boundaries. Don't be looking over here. <laughs> from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am the production editor, Grace Pratt, and I'm going to ask you to kind of rewind your mind a little bit for this episode because it was actually recorded in December when we were in a little bit of a holiday mood and a holiday point of view. And through a little series of errors, it's coming out after our January episode. So I hope that you'll listen in to us in this conversation about boundaries and integrated care. Such a critical conversation and so much good information dropped from our co-hosts. But I also hope that you will forgive us if there are a few more holiday references than you would typically expect at this time of year. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. Uh, I'm excited. I thought for sure we'd done this topic before, but we haven't. But before we get to that, we are going to start the way we always do with our introductions. And I have a bit of an icebreaker question for you. I At first I was like, what's the best gift that you've ever given or received? But for me personally, that puts too much pressure. Like I cannot decide on something as a singular best. So I opened it up. What is a wonderful favorite gift that you have either given or received. And so we're going to go around the circle for me visually. And next to me, I have Monica Williams Harrison. Hello, everybody. Monica Williams Harrison, licensed clinical social worker, but behavioral health clinician at heart. Um, I am a clinical trainer and practice coach for the AIMS Center at the University of Washington. I am horrible at gift giving. I don't like it. It's too much pressure. However, the best gift I ever gotten was as an adult. Oh gosh, I must have been in my mid 30s. My children got their little dollars together. I'm sure my husband helped. And they got me a brown skinned cabbage patch doll. The backstory to that is I had always wanted one as a kid, like always wanted a Cabbage Patch doll. And I never got one. I mean, shout out to my mom. She did the best she could. Hey, mom. Um, <laughs> but, and I wanted a brown skin one. And the, like, it was like an anomaly. It was like a unicorn uh, to find a brown skin one. And so throughout the years, like every now and then I would mention something about it. And apparently my children actually do halfway listened to me um, and went in together and got me that for a Christmas gift one year. Oh, that's great. How thoughtful. <laughs> I know. I know. Good. I'll have to remember that now that they're way old and only asking for money. <laughs> Some credit. <laughs> How things change. Uh, I love that. Thank you, Monica. Uh, next, we have Jen Thomas. Hi, so I'm Jen Thomas, family medicine uh, trained physician, uh, Morris Hospital, uh, Director of Integrated Behavioral Health with Morris. So best gift I ever got or gave, that's a tough one. I'm, I'm also not a very good gift giver. My husband Just always gives me the of, most thoughtful. One of the best. Open All right, one up. of the best. No yeah, I always feel like poor in comparison, like his gifts are always thoughtful and, you know, sentimental. And I'm like, ah, I got you a shirt that doesn't fit. <laughs> so it's very uneven. So I'm thankful he sticks with me despite my 
my poor gift giving. Um, growing up, uh, what stands out is I was into art and painting when I was like pretty young, like maybe junior high. And I got a Bob Ross art set, you know, with the mm -hmm. public TV Bob Ross with the little tree over there paint set. So I was super into him. <laughs> when I was um, an early teenager and had like a lot of landscape mountain lake <laughs> paintings um, around the, the house. <laughs> Do you still um, paint? I do a little, um, not as much as I wish I, I did. I did one of those painting classes. Do you ever go to those studios where you can like sip and paint, like have a glass of wine and you all paint the same thing? Our, our work did that. Our family practice clinic all went, one of our nurses organized it and we all painted a beautiful dragonfly this past summer. And I was like, oh yeah, painting, it's fun. So it was good to connect with the artistic roots. <laughs> Soothing. Yes, for sure. Uh, and next we have Bridget Beachy. I'm Bridget and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by trade. In practice, though, a behavioral health consultant, also director of behavioral health at Community Health of Central Washington in Yakima, Washington. Yeah, so uh, I love gift giving and it's super, I don't know, I, I really like to kind of go above and beyond whatever somebody's thinking, you know, like if they thought I might do this, I like to kind of like double it type of deal. But the irony of what I'm about to say is that these two gifts that I received are two of the most kind of underwhelming, just kind of almost, the one was almost, I think like a gag gift, but it's something I use every day. So my sister-in-law got me one of those like pink makeup remover uh, face towels and they're like magic eraser makeup towel. And- Not magic. It was like, it was like <laughs> a, a stocking stuffer. And again, I don't even know if it was supposed to be like real, but I use this thing like every day. It just takes off your nice. makeup so easily, especially like eye makeup, mascara or eyeliner or awesome. Yeah, it just works so well. And I was just thinking the other day, what would I do without this makeup remover towel? So that's awesome. Is it reusable? Like it's not a single use, like it is reusable. It's just like cloth <gasps> and it's pink and it has like some type of material that just takes it right off. And then um, since I'm just kind of using it mostly for the eye makeup, you could do different parts and then you just wash it and then you're good to go. And then you just wash it, you're good to go. And oh so my gosh. That that's was one amazing. of the best gifts that I received. And then the other one is uh, the little carrier, little card carrier that you stick on the back of your phone. The audience can't see me, but uh, I'm holding it up for the <laughs> team members here. This thing has also changed my life. I was never like a purse carrier. And now when I go somewhere, I just have to have my phone and I, it, it's so liberating. I can't even put it in words. Mm -hmm. Travel light. That's great. <laughs> that's awesome. I think uh, that thing, I have that one too, the, or at least a similar towel, what you're talking about is called, it's literally called the makeup eraser. Uh, Cause it just, you just use what? water. It just takes everything <gasps> off. It's amazing. No. Game no. changer. All right. I'm going to go look that up too, Monica. Yeah, <laughs> they, supporting us. they should Their be supporting us. Their makeup eraser. He wants to sponsor us. You yeah, know, drop us a line. The Neutrogena <laughs> ones, like the one single use ones that are like the wet nap type, mm -hmm. those work super good, but they kind of dry your skin out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then you have to like get a whole big thing and blah, blah, blah. Or is this, it's just like, you know, you just have your little towel. No, that's great. And I love the magic eraser concept. You guys use those for your home. Like I can't tell you how many crayon fiascos have saved the day with the little white magic erasers can clean you know up it. anything. It's amazing. No, <laughs> so why not for your face? Amazing. Yeah, clean up this mess. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, love that. Love that. Okay. Next we have Deepu George. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you are. Uh, my name is Deepu George, and I'm a family therapist by training, uh, behavioral health consultant, 
by day, sometimes night. Um, <laughs> talk about boundaries. <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that. My favorite gift, uh, lots of things are popping up in my mind as I'm like reviewing different things. So I'll mention uh, two things. Uh, one is when my parents, I have this blue pol um, polo shirt that I have. And it kind of has like, like the top buttons are kind of like missing, but I still wear it and I still iron it. I still use it because it was one of the things that my parents got me when they visited last time in 2018. And I haven't seen them since. So hopefully they uh, come back in February to see me. And then um, the other gift that I have is this, uh, this big book called the Book of Common Prayer. And it was uh, a gift from uh, this couple named uh, Nancy and Alice. And uh Nancy passed away uh, a few years ago. And so when I went to her funeral, her wife, Alice, gave me Nancy's book and uh, she wrote in it. So I, I use that uh, pretty regularly. So those are the two things that stay with me. Very sweet. Yeah. I'll answer for myself since I skipped that earlier. My favorite gift I've ever received or a memorable one. Um, to, to understand the story, you have to know that my mom loved boxes a good box, she would hang on to it forever. We had a whole closet full of boxes and all different sizes. And, you know, she'd open something. She'd be like, oh, this is, this is a good box. I'm going to hang on to this one. So I'm an elder millennial. It's the year is 2002. I just turned 16. I just got my driver's license and there's no, I didn't have a cell phone. And Christmas morning, we're opening gifts and I hear a phone ringing. And at first I thought it was just like on the stereo as we're, you know, a commercial as we're listening to the Christmas radio. But then I realized, um, no, so that I didn't like think anything of it. And we go to open presents and I open a box or I open the wrapping paper and it's a cell phone box. And my mom was like, oh, sorry, it's just the box. Like, cause that would happen all the time. We'd open a present, it'd be a box for a toaster, but you know, it'd have yep. something great in it. So she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's just the box. I shouldn't have done that to you. She's recycling. Uh -huh. say it. But Reuse, I opened the box and it was the cell phone, really. Oh, that's, that's good. Times. Yep, yep. And awesome. then one of my favorite gifts to give, I haven't actually given yet, um, but by the time this podcast comes up, not that any of my family listens to it, but by the time it comes out, I will have given this gift. Um, also, my mom, I have her recipe notebook, which she like painstakingly taped recipe cards. A lot of them are handwritten into this notebook over the years. And I mean, it has a roach killer recipe that my granny hand wrote out. And on the bottom, it says, make sure to put this in a place where Gracie Ann can't reach it. So like, I mean, this thing is a, it's, it's been around for a while. And um, so I scanned every single page and I sent them to a local print shop. And Aww. a lot of the pages that like there are recipe cards that you have to flip over to see the back. I had extra pages printed of that so I can tape Aww. it so it flips over to preserve the experience. And I am going to give a copy to my brother and a copy to my dad for Christmas this year. So I'm really, I know Bridget's making crying faces. I hope there are tears, right? Like this is a gift. <laughs> they need to get it. I hope they will. Um, part of it is out of my guilt that like I have the original and I'm not letting that out of my hands. So <laughs> give them their own versions, but I'm really going to go over well. I'm talking about a credit Love card it. holder. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's practical, there's sentimental, there's a whole range of things. Whole range. We're on the whole range. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, That's beautiful. I don't think we have any news and notes to share. So I'm going to go ahead and transition us to our main topic today. You know, it is the holiday season, um, whatever holidays you and your family celebrate. And it has me thinking about boundaries, (laughs) as families often do. Um, And, you know, the time that we choose to spend with people and the time that we need to, you know, maybe set some boundaries with families or enforce some boundaries with families that can be difficult. And that made me think about our work. And there's so many ways that boundaries come into play for us. I think, um, you know, in terms of our ethical boundaries around our direct patient care, around boundary, our professional boundaries of like when we work versus when we stop working. Um, And also there's like this added nuance and integrated care of different disciplines have a little bit different boundaries. And that's something that comes up often for, you know, the physicians that I work with that will kind of treat each other's families or treat that when we as, uh, or myself as a therapist would never do that. Um, Just different boundaries, different perspectives. Um, And so I thought it would be a really rich conversation for us to have, to talk about all the ways that boundaries are relevant in integrated care. So I just want to open this up really broadly, as I often do. Um, And so when I put that topic area out to you, boundaries and integrated care, what are some thoughts that float to the top for you guys? Well, it's funny that uh, we're having this topic now, a little sneak peek into some PCBH snippets and corners that will be coming out by Dave and I. I just shot one about uh, the importance of taking a 459 warm handoff and how you're sinking your practice if you're not doing that. So uh, I know it's gonna be controversial purposefully because uh, it's a very important topic, uh, not just for controversy's sake, but that should be coming out in a, in a couple of weeks. Uh, so yeah, I have lots of thoughts on it, but I'm gonna-, I'm gonna You and controversy Bridget say it ain't so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the 459 warm handoff, is that like the, okay, we've got a minute to go, woohoo, it's Friday afternoon, and then I've got somebody crying in room two, help Bridget, is that kind of the kind yeah, of- Yeah, Jen, uh, know, Been there. The answer is, it's always, yes, that's no problem, I'll mm. be in. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> but is it always? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I hear all the time where BHCs will say, um, you know, the provider called me in, that's not, you know, they called me in because I'm a social worker, but they called me in um, for DSS. I don't know anything about DSS. Like, I don't know about food stamps that are, why are they calling me in? And mm-hmm. they shouldn't be calling me in. That's not an appropriate mm-hmm. use of my time, right? So that's another. I don't care about that either because you would, I would do what I would do. I won't, if I don't know anything about DSS, I won't do DSS, but I'm going to help that family. So we're just going to do a contextual interview. I'll tell you that much. You better believe that. I'm going to do a contextual interview. I'm there. They're there. They need support. Um, you know, you'll sink your practice if you, it, I mean, it's not about right, wrong, good, bad, this, that. It's about what works and what doesn't. Uh, so um, I would say to folks that want to have really strict boundaries like that, you can do it and test it out. So to me, this brings up a really interesting point about sometimes there's conflict between like the needs of our practice, our needs as people, the needs of the group, the needs of the patient. And that makes it really hard to navigate because you're like, yes, you should always take this 459. And I know like the always, I know there's nuance because I know that you believe in and understand contacts, but like 
I, you know, I've got these four kids and I got to get home by a certain time because my babysitter's got to leave and I don't have an option sometimes Mm -hmm. to, Mm -hmm. or like I, it was 15 minutes before I was supposed to teach, uh, last week or two weeks ago and school nurse calls me and she says, Grace, uh, James has a fever and Mm -hmm. like, I, there isn't someone else to go pick him up. And so is it poor boundaries for my work life for me to be like, sorry guys, I gotta go. And leave them in the lurch 10 minutes before teaching. I hated doing that, Mm -hmm. but I also didn't have a lot of option. And so I think it's just this interesting tension sometimes that comes up about our personal boundaries versus our professional boundaries and what the needs are in the moment. And Grace, you're definitely right. I, you know, purposely using some hyperbole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that you got to look at your team and see what can happen. So if there's somebody who has childcare, which that can happen for many reasons based on, you know, the partner's situation, when they're day- daycare. So what I would say is, you know, maybe have them take the 1159 lunch handoffs. Mm-hmm. You know, you can stagger when you start, you can stagger when you leave, you can prep in advance. Uh, you can grow your team and advocate for your needs, especially as you get bigger or as the need grows. And so yeah. if it starts off as one and then you've hit a ceiling for only so much you can do, then you have to get another one. And so, and if your ratios are all messed up where it's one BHC per seven PCPs, even six, honestly, anything more than four uh, starts getting problematic. And in that case, then there's something actually systemically that needs to be addressed. So if you have that addressed and on the day, like you're, if you want your practice to be successful, you have to figure out an engineer, how you can get the system to create it to where you're available for the team whenever the team is has their working hours. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you got me using some hyperbole there. Um, well, but well, how does that balance out when um, you don't have that time, right? Like as a BHC, I mean, let's I mean, let's be real. A lot of the individuals and those who are listening to us are not in leadership positions and are put in some situations where, like, how do you advocate? for the, the boundaries of like what you're talking about, the schedules. And then we have some that have no boundaries, right? Like, they, like I don't know, there's just nothing. I, I might not work there. I would, mm-hmm. if, if my boss ain't listening to me, mm-hmm. if yeah. we're not making movement, if things ain't happening to where it's uh, viable, then the BHC market has never been hotter. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. That's very People's true. laughing. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the only reason I... I, I I mean, I have lots of thoughts in my my mind, right? So one is when, as you guys were talking, I do think about power and privilege in being able to set the boundaries, right? And being able to demonstrate certain things and call certain shots for folks. I always think about um, who's the member of the team that has the lowest decision-making power and how often do we check in with them about the needs that they have? So people up top, or if you are in a privileged position to lead, or have a little bit more decision-making authority to kind of stagger or figure out other things uh, so that um, our employees or our team members can actually be motivated, uh, felt cared for, and they can come back, right? And that may mean still taking that 459 handout. Like one of the things that I do, at like I'm not, I'm about 30% clinical in my role. So some days when I'm um, here, I typically don't leave until I know clinic finishes, right? And I don't have to do that. Uh, but I, I, I always, in the beginning, I, I could leave at five, but then I know my team is kind of back there, right? So I try to balance that 
Uh, and if I do have to leave, I go and ask for permission to leave. <laughs> it's like, hey, I got this thing at 5.30. I got a jet, uh, go early. But I do think about um, people in positions of power and decision-making, if you're listening to really think about where your um, frontline staff is and what they're, because these ability to draw those kind of boundaries is a matter of well-being too, right? Like having the freedom to go up to your boss and say, hey, I have, you know, uh, stuff happening at home and I can't be here, right? I would hate to have a, a person go through that role without having the freedom to do so. And that's where, to Bridget's point, the market is hot. So go find a better boss, you know, <laughs> that, that's it. It's interesting to think about how, like the ways that our boundaries can be divisive, but also if we're strategic about connecting as a team and thinking, we can use the fact that we're working in a team to make sure that everyone's boundaries are covered. Um, you know, there's a statement that I learned in grad school as a family therapist that boundaries are meant to be rubber fences and not iron gates. Um, and I like that. And I think about that a lot because we need to have a boundary set, whether we're talking about, you know, our clinical hours or what we're going to do or not do for patients or how we're going to collaborate as a team. Like we need to have an idea of where our boundaries are, but then if we're so rigid about those, the, and, and I think that's what you're talking about, Bridget, this rigidity of like, nope, can't do that as a wholesale, instead of thinking about the bigger picture of what's going on in this context, what is going on for me, what's going on for this patient, what's going on for my team. And sometimes if somebody's asking me to go in to talk about disability with a patient, you know, I, like you said, I'm not just gonna be like, oh no, I don't know anything about that. But to walk in and say, okay, how can I help in this situation? What is my opportunity? But then a, a thing that I work on a lot personally and with my clients is after, after the situation, because in the moment it can be difficult to develop or enforce and figure out what your boundary is. But afterwards, a self-check-in, how did I feel about that? How did that affect my day? How did that affect me emotionally? And how does that inform maybe where my boundary needs to shift or if I need to make changes and plan ahead for the next time this situation might come up? You know, there's other ways that it comes up in teams in terms of like, what you brought up, Monica, of sometimes being asked to do something that's not really in our role or that we don't have a lot of expertise about. And so there's this concept too of like the boundaries between coworkers or within our team, as well as around our teams. I wonder, you know, if there are times that that has come up for you guys um, or thoughts that you have. Yeah, I think sometimes too. So when um, when I've been in conversation with individuals who transition from being more in traditional setting to an integrated care setting, I think that's that's when I see most of it being challenging. Some of it is our own discipline specific. Um, rigid boundaries that we bring. And that too is about interpretation. I had my fair share of conversation about, did it really say that? Or is that just how you interpret it? Because exactly. here's what the words say. <laughs> so there's a lot of that that happens. But I've, you know, I've been in that situation where a different discipline in the mind said, oh yeah, well, I didn't figure that out for the patient. Um, because even though we're both BHCs, you're a social worker. So they'll just come to you and you'll help them with that part. And I was like, you say what now? I was not in a position to speak up, going back to, you know, what Deepu is, is talking about, which is really real, 
um, feeling like you're lower on the totem pole and don't have um, the space or the sense of um, inclusivity or belonging to speak up, right? There's, there's a complete fear factor there. Um, so I've been in that situation and I've had to be like, no, like you need to know all the community resources. Like I need to know all the community resources. We got the same role. You might get paid a little bit more and y'all don't get me into the pay thing, but you might get paid a little bit more because of your discipline. Um, but no, we're both doing the, the same job and should be able to help patients. And I've been in this situation similar to what Bridget was talking about where I've still gone in or 59. I don't know anything about food stamps, but I'm going to talk to that patient about what their social supports are and how that's impacting them and their health and that's great. you know all of those things and then go back to the provider and say so they're going to go to DSS tomorrow at three but here's what we talked about while we were in there and they're going to come back and see me and da, 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 da. yeah um so there's just all of these layers and mm -hmm. different avenues and I feel like I've been in all of them, and it's not always been with the primary care providers and calling mm -hmm. in last minute or asking me to do so. It's also been with colleagues of mine that are oh. from dis different disciplines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great way of saying, hey, what, what does the integrated care team do for the clinician too? I mean, we're helping our patients, but in these past couple of years, in my career working in integrated care, I didn't get a lot of training on looking at boundaries. So having that person on the team that's, hey, how are you as a provider? Is this boundary working for you? How are you feeling about that situation? I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> I never thought about that. You know, the, and we just kind of had to put your head down and do it, right? It's like in residency training, it can be a, you know, well, we all work really hard and overworked and it's just expected that you spend your nights and weekends charting. So, you know, to speak back and say, oh, well, there's, maybe there should be a boundary for when I'm off, I'm off. Um, can kind of fall on deaf ears, but I still think it's important to have that conversation. And just the, the further you go in life, I think you realize there's more of that importance of um, not living to work. <laughs> so, well, that's yeah. an important, you know, a different end of the spectrum. We, we started talking about really rigid boundaries and people say, no, it's 459. They can't take that warm hand off. But there's also some problems at the other end of the spectrum when people have really lax boundaries or, you know, we can, I think in both ends, we can get into lots of burnout, but also lots of um, it, just ethical problems too, when we don't have enough boundaries sometimes on the other end. Yeah. And, you know, Grace, I think the, what I see the most in integrated care is the over, uh, from the BHC side of things is the overbound. It's like this, this crazy level of rigidity. And I mean, contextually, it makes sense maybe from the the, up, the, the training and mentors and important people and the messaging. And it, it really is uh, very hard to overcome if you want to be uptaken as, as this team member. You know, this no wrong door um, is so important for those early, that early adop adoption implementation of integrated care. And you're completely right. Like on the opposite end, uh, there are lots of things that I do, like I don't have email on my phone, my work email on my phone, which I think anyone who knows me would think that's crazy. They would think I would, but I don't. Um, I don't work on PTO anymore. Um, we had a situation, we ha had situations where maybe somebody called out and somebody was using their paperwork to cover warm handoffs. I went and lobbied and made sure that we got per paid per diem for that. And so mm -hmm. there's, it's all about, right, in a contextual lens, I know context, contextual lens, what's functional and what's not. It's not functional for my team to work in clinic, you know, 55 hours a week in saying yes to everything. 
that's not functional. But it's not functional to not be available when you're you're always leaving and your entire team is is stay, is staying is staying there. So your 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 MAs, your nurses, your PCPs, yeah, they're all staying, but you're always gone at five five oh one. Now again, if you have something worked out to where you have childcare and it's a very specific thing, well then you got to lobby or inform that not that you have to the organization then has to put something in place. So um, I know that's just a lot to say that like. I'm using some of this as specific hyperbole, but really you have to look at what works and what doesn't, what's functional and what's not. And me working on my PTO, that don't help nobody. And Mm -hmm. me working on my paperwork, covering clinic and not getting paid for it, that's not helpful. Yeah. I'm curious because this is something I've experienced a lot working in medical education. And I'm curious of those of you that have been a little bit more in a clinical role, if this happens to you too, it seems like for residency programs in particular, because that's been my experience, who start to get all of the things a behaviorist can do, like, oh, you can help with remediation, you can write curriculum, you can do uh, our reaccreditation paperwork, you can teach didactics, you can do clinical work, you can, and they start to realize all of the things that we can do. And then we get, I don't, I see deep nodding. I'm not sure if this has been your experience, but then we get asked to do more and more and more. Oh, wait about, what about the research? What about the grant writing? What about the uh, program development evaluation? And so it's this very long list of things that we can do, but we can't do all of them. And so I see these behavioral medicine faculty who go into these programs with, and I, I'm involved in a mentorship of early career behavioral medicine faculty. And they go into these programs that it's it's like a couple of paths. Like on the one hand, there's programs that are like, oh, no, 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 we don't really need you here. So you sit in that corner and we'll just let you know when we need something. And like, that's terrible in a different way. But then there's the programs that buy in and they get it and they think you're amazing, but they want you to do like seven people's jobs. And that is also not possible. So I'm wondering if that happens in a a more clinical space as well, once people realize like how versatile and skilled that we truly are. Um, I'm guessing it's a universal experience, but it certainly happens in academic medicine constantly. Yeah, I think I I definitely had the graduate student to professional syndrome. Like even though I had a job and I did have a like a I'm no longer a graduate student, I still had that graduate student mentality when I got in. Like it's like I couldn't say no to anything that was coming my way. Uh, somehow I got to earn my keep, you know. Um, and so those kind of messaging uh, was operating, and I just didn't know that it was right. And the the other side of flexibility is I am extremely flexible. I can roll with the punches, go with the flow, whatever metaphor that you want to use. And at the same time, I realized uh, me not being able to kind of um, dictate certain things for me, whether it's taking time off, whether it's like not working on PTOs or not being available, uh, that is a lesson that I'm constantly learning, right? Like uh, how to really say no to certain things and yes to certain things. Uh, And that, you know, and as I I have more and more responsibilities, I, I have to practice some of that which is really hard for me because I like to do and engage in meaningful work a lot of the times right so uh that's it's it's a fine balance I didn't have a lot of mentorship when I started um and so I think that was a big drawback of my first few years in my career I didn't have a lot of people guiding me because we, we were in a brand new setting uh we were in a brand new medical school so there wasn't that 
um, community of folks or even a brand new residency with a lot of young faculty. And so uh, I am one of the most senior faculty in our department, and that's a problem, you know, when <laughs> I'm one of the more senior ones. <laughs> Uh -huh. I think that something you said I think is so important is that a lot of times these are amazing opportunities and we absolutely would be able to contribute. And it's out of this like desire to do these projects and to do this meaningful work that we keep saying yes, but it is a very slippery slope to ending up in a place where it, you've said yes to too much and the boundaries weren't there and now you can't be effective at any of it. And then you're drowning, right? And and the other kind of caveat that happens sometimes for some people, and particularly people of color, is this need to, um, like, I got to work harder than everyone else. Like, I have to show. And although I don't want you to say, like, oh, Monica, you represent all African-Americans. But there's this internal thing that's like, all right, like, don't. Oh, I was getting ready to cuss. I can't remember if we cuss on the podcast. Okay. Don't do. mess up. Let's go for it. No, you <laughs> like fly. don't like don't don't mess up because now you're gonna mess it up for the person that's coming behind you, right? Mm -hmm. So there's there are also these um internal, really ingrained, um, because mm -hmm. it took me a very long time to say no to things. And I'm gonna be honest, I'm still in that space where sometimes I don't say I'm super flexible too. So it's like, oh, I'm off. Okay, but there's a meeting at five. Well, I'm not doing that. I'm doing the meeting at five, right? Like that is so me. Yeah. My hope yep. is though, on the flip side of that, I gotta go to a daughter's appointment at nine. Mm -hmm. I'm out to go to my daughter's appointment at nine. That's right. Right. Like yes. there's some mutual yes. um respect there. Yeah. yeah. Right. And you don't get that everywhere you go. Um, but I I just know that that is also still a struggle of being able to say no. Um, and feeling like you can say no, not just to the person, but also for yourself to not yes. feel lesser than because mm -hmm. you didn't do all seven things that they asked you to do that you could say, oh, you know what, Grace, I would love to help you with that project. I have these other five things you asked me to do. What's one of those things would you like for me to put in place instead mm -hmm. um, to be yeah. comfortable in doing that? Yeah. You know, it's hard. Mm hmm. I almost wonder, I don't know if this is y'all's experience of what you think about this, but I almost wonder if it's easier for us to maintain our clinical boundaries with patients because we've spent our whole, that is something we do get a ton of mentorship and development on. I mean, from like ethics is always, always one of the first classes for all of us. And so we're getting these constant messaging about, you know, how be boundaried with your clients and with patients and maintain these clinical boundaries. Don't lose your license. Well, exactly. Yeah. And so we, in some ways, have put a lot more active thought into that than we have around this professional side of it that we're talking about. And Grace, I was going meta. I feel like I was you when I was like listening to everybody talk of like just how this is not talked about as a big aspect during all the graduate school. And if you didn't have mentorship, I was like, as y'all were talking, I was thinking of all the books that I've been trying to read on this very topic of like, you know, one of the books, I can't remember which one was highlighting that every single time that you say yes, you're saying no to something else. And that stuck in my brain in a completely different mm. way. And so that might not be whatever, you know, what, what speaks to somebody else. So you're going to have to maybe have mentors and colleagues, but I think there's going to have to be intentionality brought to this topic to figure out what is going to work for you. Uh, because that was like a game changer for me. It was just like, oh, oh 
don't get me started on don't get me started on the absolute lack of boundaries in academia these people can't mentor us on boundary (laughs) setting and professionalism they're the ones that wrote the book on like not having any so uh, i think (laughs) they're not good our professors are not gonna save us they're they don't know well there's a new generation coming right like there's (laughs) a new generation coming because i will say i don't know what i'm considered when you start talking about gen z and all that stuff but i will say I have had to think differently about some individuals when I've like said, hey, can you do that? And they're like, nope, I'm not going to be able to do that. I've been like, what? <laughs> oh, wait, oh, wait. I wouldn't know what you mean. that. Like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. Then, you know, you got to stop and be like, you know what? They're yeah. right. Okay. Right. That's fine. That's cool. And yeah. so, you know, there's a new generation of yeah. academia mm-hmm. coming on through that sets the tone. Leadership set the tone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was, I'm curious, Jen, as you are kind of thinking and listening to all of this, Mm-hmm. In your professional socialization as a physician, I, it sounds like that there is a hidden informal curriculum around all of this as you guys go through the whole mm-hmm. process, right? Yeah. yeah. What do you think are the messages, rules that you've picked up? Um, yeah. It's a good helpful question. or unhelpful? Right? It doesn't have to be. <laughs> I mean, not enough not enough conversation around ethical boundaries. I mean, I was literally trying to think back like, okay, in med school, did we have sessions on ethics? A handful. And it was basically like, don't take gifts from your patients. Don't sleep with your patients. You know, like a very big no-nos thing, but, um, but it's great. And especially in your practice setting, you know, I work in a rural clinic where a lot of my patients are my coworkers and their kids and their parents and their neighbors. And it does get ethically, messy. And then you do end up getting the, you know, Saturday night, oh, can you call me in an antibiotic, you know? Um, So, right, then you have to find that own personal boundary of, well, I might do amoxicillin, but I'm not going to do a benzo or an opioid, you know, like it's, it's messy. And so I think we could do better. And and again, I can't speak enough for integrated care, just a team-based approach that if I get in the weeds ethically, it's so nice to have a care manager, like, hey, Mike, you're a social worker, (laughs) you know, like, help me navigate this patient request that gets a little, feel a little uncomfortable with this. We had one last week that just came in and like, I need this form done now. I don't have an appointment. And we're like, whoa, like very disruptive to clinic. And it was just nice having um, another professional to bounce that off of like, hey, it's okay, right? Like, I feel like I need to people please patients all the time. Cause you know, we get that message from the C-suites of patient satisfaction and you will go above and beyond and bend over backwards. So um, it's tough. I don't know. I, I struggle with the, the boundaries thing all the time, but I think having an integrated care team is so great for just working through some of those gray uh, territories. I don't know if I answered your question, Deepu, but I no, guess I'm I, a learner in that no, I think, Yeah, I think we're all learning <laughs> yeah. in the process. And I, um, yeah, I think one is just um, patient care boundary stuff, but I was also wondering mm-hmm. as a physician, yeah, um, that role that you embody outside of patient care, did you have attendings or um, mentors or colleagues that kind of showed you how to manage work-life kind of things? Like being I mean, to- like to not be up at 8 p.m. Um, mm-hmm. signing off on things, Jen, and oh, I, I wish. And- I mean, I, t- I'll tell you the ugly truth the opposite message. I mean, we get messaging of, well, everybody does that. That's what it's expected of you is to chart nights and weekends and to take call and be available if someone pages you after hours. I mean, it's just that that's what you do. Coming from the leadership also, yeah. because even 
you know, the accrediting body has said, oh, we need to put limitations on work hours. Maybe we don't need to put limitations on work hours. And the direct messaging that comes from attending physicians about, well, when I was a resident, yes, (laughs) yes, like the least helpful thing that you can say to someone that is deeply burned out. And so now they have to report their duty hours. And I'm like trying to fight this. I'm like, look, report the actual hours that you worked. I'm not joking. And the residents are like, okay, like you can't see it because this is the audio media. But then I'm like, wink, wink, wink. They're like, oh yeah, I'll I'll report my hours. No, no, report your hours. And they're like, yeah. So why do we have this like? Why do we have? I'm I'm over here a little bit. Problem. Loki getting aggravated. Yes, like, why do we have this so backwards? Yeah. And if they do report all the hours that they actually worked, then we're like, oh, that's a violation. You right. need to right. stop. But the like, uh, yeah. but the system trouble. doesn't help yeah. me succeed. Yeah, it's a huge systemic problem. <laughs> yes. The funding does not trickle to primary care. And that's what uh, Dave just did a PCBH corner with a family med- medicine physician on that very topic. It's like, what this comes down to is that there's not enough funding. So people are just spread so thin. And so when you don't work those type of hours, things fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's got to be a better way. How about not being spread so thin? How about getting that workforce? Uh, and we've left off of, you know, how many people in groups of people by only taking from a certain pool to become, you know, I, I for know the we're workforce. not talking about payment models today, but, you know, like, Obviously, fee-for-service has all kinds of problems, and there's important things about moving to outcome-based measures, but if we move to outcome-based measures and we're not giving people the resources Mm -hmm. to meet those outcomes, then we're just asking them to do exactly what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, funding is is really it when I'm thinking about your Amazon and your Google, where all this research has been done about how effective individuals are more effective, actually, with Mm -hmm. a shorter work day, right? And all these other additional things that Amazon and Google employ, depending on where you are, right? I'm speaking general, but could get in the things they have available for them. You're hungry, go down to the cab, eat for free. You need a break, go to this room, take 15 (laughs) minutes, take a nap, right? Like all these things that that have been shown and they've studied to make for more effective employees that stay long-term and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And we have it completely backwards in terms yep. of yep. provider satisfaction and what that's supposed to mean for yep. ain't like what's happening. Do you yep. guys, uh, did you ever read animal farm? Mm-mm. No, oh. what's that? George Orwell. Yeah. So there's the, the horse and he just, no matter whenever things happen, just says, all right, I'll work harder. I'll work harder. And uh, he just kind of works himself to literal death and loses all, you know, efficiency. It's a and real uplifting today. Yeah, we're keeping it. But, uh, Grace, don't you, I mean, can't you just. Yeah, you, well, you know, we've it? had an ongoing conversation about workforce in our field and, you know, our live podcast was about workforce and policy and so much of the theme of the of the conference and there's a issue of uh, family systems and health coming out. That's a special edited issue all about workforce, but there's this con we got to, yeah, you can work yourself to death. You can work your workforce out of the thing. I, something stuck with me years ago that I read and I wish I knew who to attribute it was that medicine treats um, people as the only expendable resource. Mm-hmm. 
We're saving our pennies. We're counting how many gauze pads we're using. We're counting mm. down to nickel and diming on these charges, but we act like our clinicians, like just work them, you know, work them, work them, work them. If they quit, there'll be somebody else. And that's they're the not people. Thing. They're not a patient to their, their health issues don't matter. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think uh, I, I try not to think about it too hard because I find it super depressing, but I think is. there is absolutely a thread of that that runs through this field that we're working in. It does. Yeah. I think the podcast ago, I think we, I, Jen, I don't know if you remember, I think we talked about this where um, I remember you reacting to it. That's why I said, you know, the next revolution in healthcare is really applying human-centered design principles to protect the workforce so that there are conditions that are created where we can deliver consistent, high-quality patient care because of the way the systems are designed, because of the way people are treated. Um, and, you know, the counting shifts from cost past the number of people, number of days mm -hmm. off, number of healthy days of our employees mm -hmm. and, and folks in, mm -hmm. in the trenches and yeah. other positions, right? Um, yeah, yeah, no. I, it's hard not to feel hopeless with that. It, what comes to mind is some of the um, moral injury with the COVID vaccine, where we had workers that, you know, we, we had frontline ICU nursing and respiratory therapy going into COVID rooms. And then, you know, the vaccine came and then there was all the controversy. Are you vaccinated? Are you not? And, uh, you know, not that we have to, you know, talk about where we stand on that, but there was definitely in the in the healthcare field, this sense of like, maybe you are expendable if you, if you choose a different path. And I sat with many coworkers on, on the, you know, just the devastating feel of like, I do feel expendable. I do feel like I was asked to go into the front lines and then now I make this choice and, and um, I don't have a job. And I don't know, it, it's just been a really rough time. I think just in the last couple of years, extra focus on some of that. We feel, felt expendable. I don't know. Um, you know, your own point. I think we talked about that at one of the, um, Plenaries of CFHA, maybe it was like a year or two ago. So no, I mean, you're, you're right on target. And something is happening in this conversation that I think happens a lot when we talk about burnout and compassion fatigue and which boundaries are absolutely closely linked to is we start by talking about individual problems and the individual need to set boundaries and individual feelings of burnout and it living within the individual. But then the longer we talk, the more we shift to recognition that this is a system level problem. Yeah. And we can't just tell clinicians, take better care of yourself, set better boundaries, <laughs> and that's going to solve a system problem because it's not. Mm -hmm. But we also can't not tell people to take care of themselves and set boundaries because nobody else is going to do it for you. Amen. And so to me, it always has to be this both and conversation. We have to both protect ourselves individually, which a big piece of that is finding our boundaries while also considering the needs of the system and learning where we can flex those and where we can let them be rubber fences. Um, while we also work to affect change at every level in our chat, Bridget was talking about her like brunt force drive to get herself into leadership so that she could affect these changes. And we need, yeah. um, we yeah. need the system level change and we cannot neglect our own individual efforts. It's gotta be both. And Monica hit the nail on the head with some of that systemic thing of Amazon and Google and Silicon Valley of them, they know 20% time. Yeah. So they give 
their employees 20% time. I strive to do that for our BHCs here. We don't have one BHC who's working more than seven clinics, or the clinic is a half day, more than seven half days of clinical work. And they can pick the shift that they want. So um, that's also an industrial organizational literature is about being able to choose what shift that you do and about having as much autonomy as possible. So when I make those conditions for our 17 BHCs, including myself, that 459 handoff gets taken and gets taken with a smile because I'm contributing to the team. We're all rowing together. And then I take this one on Tuesday. It happens again on Wednesday. Somebody else says, Bridge, you took it last time. Then Thursday, something comes up and they say, you know what? You took that the last time. But that only happens if people are fresh, people feel supported, people feel heard from a systemic level. And I'm not saying we have it all figured out. I'm just saying that we've made strides in that area of like, you know, it's at both end of like, let's be, let's well, not sitting around saying, this is the way we've always done it. Everybody no. does this. So keep right. Like you're thinking <laughs> about yeah. innovative ways, like what's something, to, can you change all systems? I mean, mm. you can keep advocating Bridget. I think you got a lot of the voice girl, but <laughs> like you have control over, like you yeah. are being a gatekeeper for the system and doing the things that you can do where you are. And that yeah. to me is actionable, right? Like yeah. we could talk about burnout and self-care and why they have us doing this and why they have us doing that. What's the action? You gotta put some mm -hmm. action somewhere to mm -hmm. try to make things better for others. Yeah. And yourself. All of this is making me think about a few things, right? And maybe at a meta level, ultimately boundaries uh, could come down to the sense of belonging we create um, in any group setting, right? And so if you're a BHC, part of a, um, uh, if you're a PCP, doing what you can to create that for others, like what Bridget did and what uh, many of us do in our teams, I think that can kind of help, help set those better boundaries. I do want to say like some of that is really based on um, the culture that we set up, like the my willingness to take a 459 is based on the knowledge that Bridget is going to take the next 459, right? Like Bridget is not clocking out at 3.30 and going home. Right. And that creates the flexibility of the boundaries that we need. And, you know, as a, you know, and PCBH work and or any integrated care work, I do think the team and what is happening in front of you matters a lot. And the minute you say no, you are drawing a boundary that sometimes cannot be undone. Right. Um, like when uh, I started working part time with our sports medicine team, I can't say no yeah. to a call that may come up at eight at night sometimes, right? If I can and kind of take that call or a Saturday morning, because that's when the athletes are, that's where the athletic trainers are. And if I said, no, they're going to rely on me less. Mm -hmm. Now that I have that trust with them, they work with my schedule a lot more frequently, right? Then, then we've kind of taught them ways to kind of troubleshoot at the point of care. So that I can arrive, if not immediately, a little later or like have a, a televisit or whatever, right? But I think it really comes down to how do you set the belonging first? And that may actually help everybody come into that fold much easier, even to the extent that you are motivated to draw better boundaries because of that sense of belonging and what you what you promote as a leader, as a team member. Really I think that's a mic drop right there you are motivated to draw better boundaries because of that sense of belonging and what you what you promote as a leader, as a team member. I know. We all agree. I know. We all agree. We had a pause with and just they, all of us sitting here. just dropped the bomb right there. It has nothing yes, to do with a 459 handoff. That's just the, you know, that's just the yeah. surface. It's, there's yeah. so yeah. many layers. 
Yeah. And the trust, the trust that's involved, the, the, the partnership, the, the identity and formation of the team. That's what, I mean, that's what keeps us going in this work. And that's, you know, I think on the surface, people look at it and say, oh, how is that different than traditional therapy? And they think, oh, 15 minutes or, oh, you're in the same office. But this is the reason why we talk about team-based while we're the collaborative family healthcare association is because the differences run so much deeper than just what the appointment looks like or what we're covering in our intake or how we do consent. It is about this deep philosophy of what we bring together. And mm-hmm. yeah, Ooh, mm-hmm. that was powerful. Me too. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to pause us there. I don't know what more that we have that we could say. I, I, have loved this conversation. Um, I hope that our uh, listeners have enjoyed it as well. And we will close the way we always do with an ending from Deepu. All right. Uh, this is a little reflection in uh, the context of this conversation around boundaries. It is the end of a long year for many of us, uh, hopefully a reflective time for a lot of us. Um, I've been thinking a lot more about self-compassion, self-love, those kind of concepts and its uh, implications in physician well-being, my own well-being and all of that. So I found this. I thought uh, this would be something to send us off into 2023. This is from the book called Lighter by Young Pueblo. And he writes, pick the path that lights you up. The one you know deep down is the right choice. Stop listening to doubt. Start connecting with courage. Do not let the idea of normal get in the way. It may not be the easy path, but you know how great things take effort. Lean into determination. Lean into your mission. Lean into the real you. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, Monica and Bridget and Jen. Thank you, Kevin, our editor. Thank you to our listeners. And we will talk to you again next month. Thank you.